0: You're listening to a 95BFM podcast.
1: You're tuned into The Wire. One hour of current affairs and analysis starting now.
2: Henderson tōku No ora, welcome to the wire for Ramada Friday Hope that you're all doing well if coming up in the show today I have spoken to city councilor Shane Henderson on our regular city counseling segment talking about the transport emissions reduction pathway. I've also had a chat with the Human Rights Commission about their new conservation, conver, conversion practices support services with the program's manager, Andre Afemasaga. I've also spoken to Kelly Edison from Kia New Zealand, as well as ACT MP James McDowell, about human capital flight and where the debris of the brain drain is coming from. David has had a chat with Victoria Chen from Victoria University on linguistics locating the beginnings of the Austronesian expansion, as well as Stephen Judd from Fact Aotearoa on candidates bringing conspiracy theories to local elections. Hi aha o Fakado, we would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces pieces. So please get in touch. Toku Partu Himai, you can text us on 5395 or rane give us a call in studio on 309-3879. After the show, kawa e wareware i hai Kato katoa te Fakarongo, ki ene kororo ano hai Pakiare, Rokidoki, maranga ite pai Tokutoku, i reingai poho, miahari ki 95BFM, irekati.com. You can catch all of these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website, 95BFM.com. Now, tell me about your father
3: City
4: Counselling on 95BFM Our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council
2: The Auckland Council has recently released Their new Transport Emissions Reduction Plan This is looking to both increase the reliability of public transport And its sustainable practices over the next eight years To learn more, I spoke to Shane Henderson On our regular City Counselling segment To learn more about the changes I first asked him what actions the plan will consist of
5: yeah, so basically it's a aspirational goal for our city to um, cut 64% of our transport emissions by 2030. Now, that's only eight years away, so it is a goal that's a fairly um, – it asks a lot of questions, I think, of Aucklanders and its governance on how we can actually cut our emissions and um, secure a better future for our, our kids, basically um, – I've got some of the detail here, Just, I'll just run through it really briefly. Um, making the majority of our local trips, uh, which is under six kilometres, by public transport, cycling or walking, uh, converting 30% of the city's vehicles to electric, uh, a tenfold increase in walking and cycling and a fivefold increase in public transport trips. So that's the kind of goals that we have. Um, but it was pointed out in the debate yesterday, actually, one of the councillors said, Look, you know, we've done this before as a city in the 40s and 50s. We had huge uh, public transport patronage. Uh, that's the kind of thing we've actually got to get back to.
2: The thing, how likely is it that this plan will go ahead when a I- there have been many plans in the past where these mm. have in the goals and then they haven't been properly met. Is the council doing anything to make sure that these goals are met for both transport implementation and emissions reduction?
5: Yes, there's a real feeling that uh, council needs to follow this plan closely because, as you say, you know there is some lack of trust out there with the community. Sometimes when we make plans and then we don't follow through with them, this is one thing that we absolutely desperately need to do. Um, but at the same time, there is a challenge there for individual leaders and for communities as well when the changes that need to happen, come to a community based on climate change, then I think as city leaders, we've got to step out in front and say, look, this is for the climate, this is for our future. Um, Because there's been backlash and all kinds of things around cycle ways and those kind of things. In the future, we've got to sort of look at those with a bit more leadership, I think.
2: Will the new plan be enough to curb the ongoing rise of carbon emissions?
5: Well, I think that's the uh, million-dollar question. Um, I think that transport is the main lever that council themselves can pull, and 40% of Auckland's emissions come from transport. Uh, But at the same time, to cut emissions, we can do a bunch of other things as well. And it, one of my favourite examples is I think that council, from a planning perspective, should be encouraging more housing closer to where people live and work, uh, which actually cuts transport entirely out of the equation when people are able to walk to work, right? Um, that's one of the things that we can do, but we've got to look at this the whole total package, and I think the government are doing that very well as well.
2: Another big part of this new plan is that public transport is now publicly owned rather than owned by a private corporation. What does this mean for commuters?
5: Yeah, so basically it allows um, on-demand public transport services and to be able to deliver routes and services that are a bit more flexible that reflect community needs a little bit more Um, because we've had a lot of community concern about things like ghost buses and, uh, you know, buses that are far too large for their route. Uh, That's kind of one example there uh, where we might need to step in and make things a little bit easier and change things a little bit. Um, We need to incentivise decarbonisation of the fleet. That's a really important thing. Um, Also, improving pay and working conditions for drivers, because how it relates to commuters is, at the moment, most days you'll see boards with huge amounts of cancelled services. Obviously, COVID's got a lot uh, part to play to that, but at the same time, we're not attracting the amount of drivers that we need. And this is a job that's a pillar of the community. I think we should be really encouraging uh, workers to step up and be bus drivers, and there's a paying working conditions element to that. Um, I think the moves here have been really great to kind of change things there.
2: Are there any other changes that the council is looking to make to improve the reliability of public transport at the moment? Because there's been a lot of plans about the future, but there are a lot of issues that need to be changed around right now in Auckland Transport.
5: Oh, most definitely. Um, it's a really tough conversation to have to say, look, we've got to put on more public transport routes, all those kind of things, when the current ones are not being felt. I, I appreciate the residents' um, frustration with that kind of thing. Um, But, yeah, at the same time, um, we've got to make sure that uh, we're encouraging mode shift from private motor vehicles for people that have those options. I think it's very important. Um, And actually having better environmental and health outcomes, uh, which, you know, over 3,000 people uh, pass away a year through uh, pollution-related deaths, and that's not to mention the deaths and serious injuries on our roads, which are still at unacceptably high levels. So these are really important things that we've got to get our teeth into.
2: How confident are you and the council that these changes will make drivers use public transport more often? And if not, or not 100%, are there any changes that you would be willing to make to help drivers who can take public transport more often? So
5: there's a couple of things there in terms of incentivising people. One of them is the route actually has to be there, and it's got to be reliable and frequent. Those are very important things. The other thing is that it's actually got to be affordable for people. Uh, So the half-price fares that that are being put in through by the government at the moment, they've been revolutionary in my opinion. They've been really great uh, on the hard bottom-line budget decisions of families, especially ones that live in the outer suburbs like the ones that I represent. That's a really important thing. But the other thing that gives me confidence that actually we can do this is that consistently over many years, the public have submitted over and over to us saying they desperately want us to actually do something about climate. And especially our young people are demanding that. So it doesn't just come from the council, it comes from people that elect the council, I think, ultimately. And those are the changes that need to be made that people really understand.
2: I feel like at the end of every interview, the general moral is just going to be listeners should probably vote.
5: Absolutely, especially young communities, diverse communities.
2: How is the council looking to improve the current urban planning issues that have put Auckland in the sort of car driven society that it's currently in, that has, in a sense, gotten us into this mess?
5: Yes, yeah, so we have, um, at the moment, we've got consultation open on um, the housing reform package that the government have put in place uh, that council have responded to. Now, this is an awkward situation because I you know, fundamentally disagree with the majority of council uh, on this situation. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I would encourage people to submit on the kind of future that you want Auckland to, to be, that you want to live in. Uh, there are huge urban planning requirements of that because in the last, you know, several decades going all the way back, all we've done is continually built outwards and outwards and outwards with urban sprawl that's really extensive to service and really hard particularly for young people to get to their work or study. I I think that we should have a bit of a revolution in urban planning where we're actually encouraging housing close to the central city and close to these uh, employment nodes. Um, But, you know, don't let me put the words in the mouth of the listeners. I think it's really important that you feed back on that situation.
2: That was Shane Henderson on the Transport Emissions Reduction Plan. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Counselling on 95BFM. More and more, New Zealand has seen candidates enter local elections being informed by conspiracy theories. Groups that have spread misinformation about vaccines and the pandemic are entering their local races across the country. The concerns are worsened thanks to the impacts of the anti-mandate protests that hit the beehive earlier this year. Our producer, David, spoke to Stephen Judd from Fact Aotearoa about those who are running and what it means for the country.
0: First question I have is Who is Fight Against Conspiracy Theories?
6: Fight Against Conspiracy Theories Aotearoa, uh, known as FACT, is a group of volunteers that formed just before the last general election because we shared common concern about harmful conspiracy theories that were starting to circulate then. Our members include journalists, medical professionals, researchers, uh, and on the spokesperson. And what we try and do is highlight cases of harmful conspiracy theories and get them to the public attention where we think that can do some good.
0: How many local election candidates who are linked to conspiracy groups are you seeing for this local election?
6: That's hard to say. We don't have the resources to vet every candidate across the country. There are obviously hundreds of candidates across the country. People have been sending us names of candidates that they're concerned about. And in terms of reports, we've had over 130 people reported to us. Of the ones that we have spent at least half an hour looking at, more than half of them do turn out to have unusual beliefs, let's say. Some of the people that we've looked at have since been uh, reported by mainstream news media who've taken those investigations further, as you will have seen in, in the stories that have been running and stuff and elsewhere in the last couple of days. So you know, in summary, we think there are a lot of those people out there. Currently, our list is a bit patchy in terms of where they are, but we think that's about the patchiness of our networks, not because they're only in some places and not others.
0: What kind of movements and groups are you, are you finding they're associated with?
6: So I put them broadly into two groups. Uh, One is people affiliated with Voices for Freedom. Voices for Freedom is one of the largest conspiracy-minded groups in New Zealand and they maintain a very respectable outward appearance for recruitment purposes while internally they are spreading conspiracy theories to their members. For example, that masks are part of the government plot to soften us up for totalitarian rule. Uh, Voices for Freedom have asked people who are affiliated with them to run but to not say that they have voices for freedom. um, That's really concerning, because anyone can run in New Zealand, that's your right, and anyone can believe what they like, that's your right. But if you conceal that from people who are going to vote for you, democracy can't work properly. That's one group. The other group uh, that we would highlight is people who subscribe to a whole variety of conspiracy theories, like from vaccines being... A plot to poison your kids to Agenda 2030 being part of international plot to bring in one world government and depopulate the earth, all kinds of things like that. And what's interesting about those people is a few of them are open about that, but most of them are busy scrubbing their social media profiles and removing online evidence of what they think. And again, what's concerning about that is that they hold beliefs that most people probably wouldn't agree with, but they are not. Being open about them. But if you think back to previous local government elections, you probably remember reading candidate biographies and thinking, oh, that person has some pretty out there ideas. Those people were honest about what they thought, and they probably didn't get elected either. The issue here is that people who have similarly out their ideas this time around uh, are being careful not to talk about it in public.
0: How would you describe these groups? Uh, Do you think they are citizens with genuine concerns, or do you think they're grifters looking to exploit vulnerabilities in people?
6: We see people who are probably in both those categories, to be honest. Some people are genuinely, sincerely concerned, like they have really misguided beliefs, but they really do believe them. There are other people who are more getting off on the attention, even financial resources from donations and social approval from people who are getting sucked into conspiracy theories. I think there are some people who are a bit of both. They really believe, and they are receiving rewards for that from people who subscribe to them. Do you think we should be worried? Yes, we should be worried. Fundamentally, functioning democracy requires representatives to be open with voters about what they think. But beyond that, some of these beliefs go from being amusing to actually being harmful. For example, believing that Elvis is still alive is not really a harmful conspiracy belief. Doesn't matter if people believe that and it's kind of fun. When your conspiracy belief is that the government is trying to poison your kids through vaccination, that's harmful for a lot of reasons. Firstly, people don't get the treatment that they should have that would protect them. If you believe things that are really freaky and scary to you, then you are likely to act out, and it might be through violence or it might just be through protest action that disrupts um, normal life. And actually, it's pretty horrible to be scared all the time. It's actually not good for those people themselves. You know, we mustn't lose sight of that, um, that that part of the harm is actually directly to the people who you know, have a really scary vision of how the world works.
0: What do you think can be done in the face of a rise of such of these kinds of groups?
6: That's a question that has no clear comforting answer, I'm sorry to say, because why people believe these things often comes from having had really awful life experiences, through having very justified suspicion of authority, through various other things that make people vulnerable. And addressing that is obviously a huge challenge for the whole of society. In the short term, the kinds of actions that might be useful, for example, for your listeners, is to ask your candidates the hard questions about what they think and make your decisions about who to vote for accordingly. The other thing that we would really like to see is the kind of close media coverage. When local body elections are not generally very interesting and local body politics is not generally well covered by media, That's part of what lets people like this fly under the radar as candidates. We can't have any kind of vetting system for who gets to be a candidate because it is everyone's right to run. So it's up to media, it's up to concerned citizens, and it's up to civil society organisations to apply scrutiny and inform the public about who people really are.
0: If you had a message to local election voters, what would it be?
6: Get in touch with your candidates and ask them what they think. Most people do not want to tell straight up lies. so asking straight up questions about whether they think vaccination works, whether they think climate change is real, that kind of thing. They should be able to give you a simple answer.
2: That was Stephen Judd of Fact Aotearoa chatting about candidates spreading conspiracy theories in local elections. We are going to go to some quick ads and then we will be back. What's a seven letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. Okay, what about treasure trunks and six?
0: What does that even mean? Shit, you're useless. Don't you know anything? I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club, there's DJs Alicia and Andy V. And tomorrow, DJs V and Jaram Hall.
4: Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Hi, Mum. Yeah, happy birthday for the other week. (laughs) Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just calling to let you know I'm gonna be performing live on BFM. (laughs) Yeah, with my band. No, my new band. Yeah, I have got a real job. That doesn't mean I can't still. Journalist is a real job. No, mum, BFM. It's not just for students. It's like cool, alternative. Yeah, well, I hate you too. See you later, mum.
3: Every Friday, live music direct from 95 BFM Drive. Friday live on 95BFM. Thanks to Parrot Dog Bear.
0: Thanks a lot. Play some chili. Uh, I don't know if we. uh... Play some sly off. Yeah, Yeah. all right, all right. Hold your horses. One,
5: two, three. 95BFM's Jukebox Parlor is taking all your requests. And we know you have requests. Jukebox Parlor with Soon. song, Saturday, 7 to 9 pm, only on 95 BFM. I'm
0: like, yeah, whatever.
2: As access to international travel from New Zealand reopens, conversations about human capital flight have become incredibly prevalent. More colloquial, colloquially titled Brain Drain, human capital flight refers to white collar workers leaving their home country for better work opportunities overseas. Conversations have recently touched on if New Zealand is receiving an adequate number of migrants to stop our workforce from suffering in the midst of high work, white-collar workers leaving the country. To learn more, I first spoke to ex-James McFarland on why his party thinks that human capital flight is an issue and what needs to be done.
7: Well, the loss of people and the inability or the slowness of actually bringing people to New Zealand. Uh, is is having a double effect. So we're losing people and we're struggling to get people. And the result of that is obvious, right? We're getting staff shortages, workforce shortages across many sectors of uh, New Zealand. I think you could pretty much identify any sector in the country and they'll tell you about shortages. Certainly we see in in the healthcare sector with nursing and doctors and so on. Uh, but also in the primary industries as well and education. So it's, it's having a huge impact on the economy.
2: And where do you think that this comes from?
7: Well, the driving factor here in New Zealand, uh, for those looking for, uh, you know, greener pastures overseas, we've got our labour market conditions, we've got the economic situation. So the, the biggest thing there, the biggest driver, would be the cost of living and inflation. So, uh, you know, Kiwis are seeing prices just absolutely skyrocket. Uh, yes, because of the shortages, there's work opportunities here, but there's a lot of very good work opportunities offshore, Higher pay. Um, the countless people talk to us about family members going to Australia and going to Europe, the UK, etc., uh, looking for those opportunities. So you know we're hearing that all the time. Uh, and despite the opportunities here, well, you know costs are through the roof. And you know whether it's rent, whether it's just at the, at the supermarket, um, people have been locked up for a couple of years, and uh, now's, now's the time, right? The floodgates have opened.
2: Pretty much all the places that you mentioned: the UK, the US, hmm. Australia. Europe—they're all also dealing with major fuel crises, major cost-of-living crises, mm-hmm. and crises and inflation. How is it different mm-hmm. in New Zealand to these other places?
7: Yeah, well, with most of those examples, New Zealand started worse off in a worse situation anyway. So, um, you know, those that have lived in the UK, for instance, uh, will point out that actually, you know, at the supermarket—it's always been a lot cheaper over there. And and yes, they've had inflation as well um, because they've actually had very similar responses to COVID as we have. Uh, similar in terms of the, uh, I don't want to simplify it to printing money, but um, you know that sort of reaction, uh, that sort of monetary policy to actually combat COVID and, and try to control the economy. Uh, we, we've now created a situation where inflation is out of control. So yes, other countries have got inflation as well. Uh, we're still worse off. Um, that's always been there, um, but now the opportunities overseas are, are you know, the, the borders have been opened. Now's the opportunity for a lot of people, and I do get it. You know, I've lived overseas when I was younger. Uh, I, I do get the desire to go overseas and explore the world, especially after you know having been locked up. Um, but um, to have that all at once, and you know, combine that with our immigration policy, which has just been an absolute disaster—that's uh, what we're seeing now: just total loss of people.
2: Yeah, I'd like to learn more about how you guys think about the immigration policy because I've seen a lot of people mm. talking about perhaps if it was just easier from anyone from any background to come into New Zealand, then surely we would be able to see those sorts of high skilled workers and low skilled workers who are valuable despite the name come into New Zealand easily. What is stopping them from doing that right now in Xview? Yeah,
7: well, I... I- I guess I'd start by saying uh, the distinction between high-skilled and low-skilled. Um, I, I try to look past that because everybody's skilled to some degree and they, you know, they have skills and abilities that you know others don't have and that sort of thing and they fill gaps. So uh, everybody's equally important. Um, obviously, there's uh, a desire from the government for high-skilled workers, but I, what that's resulted in uh, is an immigration system that is very slow, uh, very bogged down. Yes, they've made technological advancements recently, they've put more things online and that sort of thing, uh, but but actually that's had a whole lot of um, stuff ups as well, so like with the new accredited employer work visa system, uh, the online system uh, crashed in recent weeks, <laughs> with no longer working, so they had to resort to allocating people manually, which is why they've only uh, approved like, you know, less than 10 visas in the month. Um, so this is, it's just totally unacceptable to have a system like that, to go from a sort of a bad situation and they're trying to prove it I'd actually get that so it's that it's that kind of immigration New Zealand operating as a as a police force um, trying to keep people out rather than a recruitment agency actually going you know what we need people of of a whole variety of skills um, and you know sure we can control that with policy but we've actually got to be welcoming it in the first place
2: and how could that be balanced with the nature of people leaving New Zealand because as you said You've left the country before and come back. People are going to want to explore. And, yeah, that Mm. does act as a good promotion almost for New Zealand. Mm. How do you think that we could implement that more and use New Zealanders leaving the country to Aotearoa's benefit?
7: Well, I think it is good to keep in mind the net migration figure. So, you know, we are negative and we, we are losing more than we're gaining. And it is good to keep that in mind. Uh, In terms of replacement, well, there's there's different visa types that attract different skill levels and that sort of thing. Uh, But again, it's really hard to get visas. It's it's really slow to get it, and you've got to sort out all sorts of things before you come here, including the job. And, uh, you know, now it has to be an accredited employer. If you're really lucky to be on what they they call a green list, which is the new residency scheme, then uh, you can can try and get in through that. But it's a very bureaucratic process Um, in terms of uh, those... You know, at the end of the day, the, 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 I guess the vacancies, the shortages, they will be obvious. Um, they will be advertised and they will attract certain types of people. So people will will be looking for opportunities and and fill them. So it's pretty hard to sort of say, oh, you know, X X type of people are leaving, therefore we need to replace them exactly. But um, it can more or less be worked out.
2: Do you think that this is a new issue? Because New Zealand has been talking about brain drain over the last Mm. 30 years, specifically those words. That's the thing. It's been going on Mm -hmm. for so long amongst many different governments. Is there really anything different that our current Labor government is doing other than just having happened to be in a government during a major pandemic?
7: Mm-hmm. You're right. It was this has been spoken about before and, and it has been an issue. In recent times, it's improved. We've had good migration flows and you know, the economy in New Zealand did pretty well after the GFC. We recovered. Um, but now we're in a situation where, you know, look we've had nothing like this before we've had the borders shut for so long people have been unable to leave really um, and you know in the sense that it would be almost impossible to get back so why would you leave so we've had all of that in place and, and then of course you combine that with this closed border and the immigration issues which have spiralled as well so it's like a, it's it's the brain drain that we've talked about previously but this one is much worse
2: ACT has talked about this in the sense of the economic issues that New Zealand is going through right now again ACT Mention in their version of the 2022 budget about cutting out several things, such as many initiatives that the government has taken to make sure that people have jobs, like Jobs for Nature Scheme and film mm-hmm. subsidies, things like that, that do cost the government money. But they could also help mm-hmm. us bring other workers into this country and giving them better infrastructure to get jobs here, even if that does add on to taxes is that really worth cutting out if that gives people entering New Zealand way better infrastructure to thrive in this country?
7: Well, I think with Jobs for Nature and, and, and similar programs, so programs of that ilk where you look at the total costs and you look at the amount of people that have actually been employed by it, and it's it's actually pretty astronomical, some of them, and you just think that that's crazy. You know, Why would it cost X hundred thousand dollars per person to give them a job that pays nothing like that? So the, the schemes by design are actually quite wasteful. Uh, and there's also the argument that, well, if if a job is not naturally created through companies just doing business and Kiwis doing business with each other, if, if the government has to sort of intervene and create these things, uh, are they actually did it in the first place, uh, or are companies kind of taking a bit of an easy route here and, and using taxpayers' money to create these jobs when they could have probably done it themselves anyway and done it through the private private market?
2: And I do think that there's been a lot of conversations over the past few months, few years really, about how nice of an environment it might be for New Zealanders to enter this country, especially if they are a part of oppressed groups, if they are people of colour, if they are queer. Sometimes it can be really difficult for them to be able to thrive in this country just because of prejudices that people have but maybe don't talk about yet. ACT has talked about cutting out demographic ministries such as, obviously this is on Indigenous right. topics, but the Ministry of Māori Deve- Development and things like that. that. Is there any way that we can have the balance of cutting out these groups that do help them whilst having issues of social prejudices oftentimes mm. baked into our national culture?
7: Well, I think the first reaction is that New Zealand is a very progressive country and I've, I've encouraged everybody to treat people with respect as human beings. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of groupism, but the some of those agencies, I think you'd be surprised at how little they actually do. And it's obviously there's variations in there, but it's it, the the problem is between virtue signalling and actually having a ministry or a department that actually does produce good work and actually look after people. In a lot of cases, these these sort of quasi ministries that have been set up are actually unnecessary. Um, you know, they don't they don't really do things that aren't covered by other core ministries anyway. So you know,
2: that was Axe James McFarland chatting about human capital flight. In this popular discussion, the focus of human capital flight, or brain drain, has largely been on the negative impacts that New Zealanders leaving the country has. However, Kia New Zealand is organized around keeping these New Zealand expats connected to their home country. I had a chat to their Global Communications Director, Kelly Addison, about their network and the benefits of New Zealanders travelling abroad for themselves, for other countries and for Aotearoa. She first provided me with a little more detail around her organisation.
4: Kia is a not-for-profit organisation and it's part-funded by the government and private partners. Um, so some of our funding comes from NZTE, MB and New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. And Kia was established 20 years ago, set up by Sir Stephen Tindall and David Teeth, who recognised that for a country as small as New Zealand, our offshore network was re- actually really important and crucial to our success. So effectively what Kia does today is connect offshore Kiwi to each other and then back to New Zealand.
2: So what reasons do Kiwis go overseas in your experiences?
4: So I think New Zealand has always been a nation of explorers. Um, So we are a small country at the bottom of the world, for lack of a better term. Uh, So we are fully aware that, you know, that Kiwi do travel. There's a variety of reasons. Most often it's to gain international experience and skills. Um, So while there are a lot of opportunities in New Zealand, there obviously also opportunities that New Zealand just can't provide because it is a small market, um, you know, and and opportunities are limited. Also, I think if you're really looking in terms of the business growth, you know, the, the only path to growth really is to, once you've conquered the New Zealand market, is to then look at where else you can conquer. So we do see a lot of our, our community who move offshore to grow their business or to position themselves in markets where they're they're looking to break into.
2: How have they found the overseas experiences benefit them and their community?
4: A lot of the people that CARE works with are a lot of our community, a Kiwi who have been offshore 10 years or more. Um, we know that around fifty to sixty percent of our community at any one time are looking at returning to New Zealand, whether it be in you know the near future or within kind of the next two to five to ten years. Um, the key things we see people coming home for are family and friends in the New Zealand lifestyle, um, and what we really find really valuable about that community is they do have offshore markets are in a really different position to New Zealand often so those Kiwi are bringing back like incredible skills and insights and really adding value to the New Zealand economy when they come home and we know from you know regular surveys we do with our community that even when they are living offshore they're still really interested in staying connected to New Zealand so they want to know what's going on they want the opportunity to help kiwi businesses they often want the opportunity to invest in kiwi businesses or startups so kind of keeping that community connected, because that is so important because it's of so much value to New Zealand. Like, these are people in CARES community... Is across 187 countries in the world, so we really are talking about kind of Kiwi in every corner of the globe who, you know, really want really want to help New Zealand grow.
2: In in recent months, we have seen more and more New Zealanders (coughs) talk about and consider leaving New Zealand for other places, and many people have kind of attributed this to the ongoing cost of living crisis and rates of inflation in New Zealand. Has this been a common theme in people who've recently been in touch with you guys?
4: Um, No, so we haven't seen it as much. I think it's important to realise that if you go back through media, we've been talking about a brain drain for the last 30 years. Um, you know, people going offshore is not new, and certainly with, in Kia we would never want to stop Kiwis from leaving and getting experience offshore. What, Like I said before, what we do find um, for people in New Zealand is yes, they understand that it might be a little bit more expensive to live here, um, but the draw card for them really is the New Zealand lifestyle and being close to friends and family. Interestingly, what we have found, um, you know, sort of anecdotally heard in a lot of our returners who have moved back to New Zealand recently um, is that the cost of living in New Zealand isn't as high as they thought it was going to be or isn't as high as they'd kind of prepared themselves for. Um, and it does seem like the cost of living and obviously inflation is not just a New Zealand problem at the moment. You know, there's countries all around the world are grappling with those issues.
2: Are these international travels greatly benefiting our relationships with other nations around the world?
4: 100%. So there is no greater brand ambassador for New Zealand than an offshore Kiwi. Um, recently, we just did a study that basically said one of what the results are still on market, so they're not conclusive, but sort of early um, results are showing that one of the biggest, one of the most important things for offshore Kiwi is to actually positively uphold rep- reputation of of New Zealand offshore, and to encourage people to visit and travel to New Zealand. Um, so I think when we look at, at those kiwis who are going off, I know in the past we've called it more of a boomerang effect than a brain drain. So yes, people go away, but they gain skills and knowledge, and then they come back to New Zealand and they bring with them that skills and knowledge. And while they're away, they are selling New Zealand to the world. Basically, like there's there's no amount of PR dollars that can buy that kind of you know that positive publicity for New Zealand. We um, work with a guy who's just returned. He did six years overseas. Um, He was a head of craft beer for Heineken. So his job saw him traveling all over the world to, you know, different countries, different breweries. And he said it just really blows his mind that no matter where you go in the world, you know, he was obviously going to sell beer, which is a pretty popular topic to start with. But as soon as people heard of Accent, all they wanted to talk about was New Zealand. You can be in the most remote places and you run into people who have heard about New Zealand. He's like, it's on everyone's bucket list. And he's like, that comes from that huge diaspora of offshore Kiwi who are just constantly, you know, without even really realising that they're doing it, are just great PR agents for New Zealand.
2: Do you think that there are ongoing issues about Kiwis completely leaving Aotearoa and never properly returning?
4: Um, I think every country will always have a certain amount of people who leave. Certainly, like I said, we work with Kiwis that on average have been off, you know, a lot of our community on average has kind of been off 10 years or more. Um, and we do find that the majority of people come back sooner or later. Um, often we see for us the key drivers are children. People's kids get to school age and they, or you know, young kids, school age kids, they want to come back to New Zealand for the education system or just kind of our, our balance within our education system of kind of sport, work, outdoor. And then the other thing we see that really drives people back is parents. So pe- their parents start to, parents or families start to get elderly, Um, or you know start to get older and they realise that that time is that time is quite precious um and certainly we see people it's really interesting because there can be quite a disconnect with businesses in new zealand who can sometimes be a little bit hesitant to hire returning kiwi because they think oh you know the the job won't be as challenging for them as their as their role offshore or you know we won't be able to pay them as much or you know those sorts of ideas whereas what we hear from our community is actually they understand that it, that they'll be getting a different job upon returning to New Zealand, but they, you know, they want to come home for friends and family. They know that the salary might be a little bit lower, but they're okay with that. They're looking for a lot of our returning they are looking for more of a balance
2: that was kelly edison from kia new zealand on human capital flight quick reminder that you can text us through your thoughts on any of these stories at five three nine five we're about to go to a quick break and then we'll be back with some more news
0: critias you are wise tell me what is italo disco surely socrates it is disco inspired music from italy the name proclaims it but what of sally shapiro and her throwback italo sound Then, Socrates, it's music which draws inspiration from an idiomatically Italian interpretation of disco with synthesizers and slower tempos. Critias, a problem remains here too, Socrates. It makes you sound like a huge wanker. Embiggen your mind with Plato's Retreat on
1: 95BFM with your hosts Sam, Chris, Anika, and Rob. Four to seven
2: every Saturday, thanks to Halitau.
0: What is the Austronesian language tree?
2: a language tree is... Sorry about that. A linguistic study has found an origin of Austronesian language expansion across the Indo-Pacific region. Researchers have found the indigenous people, call the Amis people from eastern Taiwan, are a close relative of Malayo-Polynesian people in the Austronesian language family. Our producer David spoke to Victoria University lecturer Victoria Chen about the findings.
3: look at the Indo-European family tree, we see that English and German are more closely related, um, whereas French and Russian are uh, the more distant relatives of English. So the Austronesian language tree is like a tree that demonstrates the genetic relationship of these more than a thousand languages spoken across American, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific. And this includes languages like Tagalog, Malay, Javanese, Hawaiian, and of course, tidaleo Maori.
0: Where did it start, would you say, and where did it spread out to?
3: Yeah, so the current consensus is that the people speaking Austronesian languages all started out from Taiwan um, and the settled the Philippines around 4,000 years ago. And there, with advanced safer technologies, they eventually dispersed to the islands in the Pacific Ocean. Um, and eventually, they settled remote islands such as Madagascar to the west and um, Is Island to the east? And of course, New Zealand to the south.
0: What can you tell me about your study and what were the findings of your study?
3: So although the consensus was quite clear that Taiwan was the homeland of this language family, that linguists and archaeologists had found very little evidence um, about where precisely this migration started and also that which indigenous people was involved in that extension. So our new project provides us missing piece of evidence um, and our evidence comes from a specific use of a grammatical affix ma um, in some of the Alchinesian languages. So um, there are four specific languages spoken in the homeland, including the Amis, which is the language spoken by the largest indigenous group in Taiwan. Um, so all of these languages, these four, show a specific use of this grammatical affix that is strictly banned in all other indigenous groups in Taiwan. Um, but this specific function is actually widely attested um, in the Austronesian languages spoken outside the homeland Taiwan. So this picture suggests that um, these four languages in Taiwan are likely to be the closest relative of the Austronesian groups outside Taiwan, um, including today Maori. And interestingly, three of these four languages are all you know spreading across the east coast of Taiwan. So this suggests that, East Coast, Taiwan was most likely to be the starting point of Austronesian expansion.
0: Where does Tadeo Maori sit in the Austronesian
3: language tree? So Tadeo is actually at the bottom of the tree um, and together with other Polynesian languages such as Hawaiian, Rapa Nui and Tahitian, these languages form the Polynesian branch, which is a lower level. Branch under um, this language family, and this actually represents the expansion of the Austronesian people, um, eventually to Polynesia, which is at the end of their journey.
0: How do these kinds of languages evolve into what they are today? Like, how did today Reo Maori evolve from the Austronesian language tree into what it is today?
3: In terms of today Maori, the current consensus is that it split off from Proto-Eastern Polynesian about 800 years ago. So today is a relatively young language. Um, and that split happened when the Maori people moved out of the society Islands and settled out to And this happened at the same time when other um, East Polynesian islands were settled, such as Hawaii, Tahiti, and the Easter Islands. And gradually after that separation from the society islands, um, Maori evolved into its own independent form and developed some unique features that eventually made it a, a distinct language
0: what kind of people were the Amis people
3: so they are the largest ind- indigenous group of taiwan and spreading along the east coast of the island um, they have very strong seafaring traditions that's both documented by archaeological records and their oral history um, they're also very good at arch dancing and singing um all kinds of art forms. Um yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about the Amis art and culture, there are lots of videos available on YouTube, um, including the Amis traditional dancing and some very cool songs written by younger generations of Amis musicians.
0: Today Omari sits in the Austronesian language tree and so does a language in Madagascar. How Ooh. how closely are they linked or would you be able to find similarities between the two?
3: There are definitely similarities in the basic vocabulary of Māori and Malagasy. So Malagasy is the language that eventually um, the Malagasy-speaking people were the people that moved out from southern Philippines and eventually settled Madagascar. And if we look into both the vocabulary and the grammar of Malagasy, we still see lots of similarities shared between the language and other Austronesian languages spoken in the asia pacific region um, so we can say that linguistics really sort of document their roots and where they came from
2: that was victoria chen from victoria university of wellington about new findings about the linguistic origins of polynesian languages we have a quick check quick <laughs> a quick track before our last story this is the cascades by fleet foxes Thank you. That was the Cascades by Fleet Foxes. Yesterday, the Human Rights Commission launched an expansion of their conversion practices support services. The pre-existing program now includes a process where victims of conversion therapy can work with the HRC to receive a formal apology or financial support. To learn more, I spoke to the program's manager, Andre Afamasana, about the changes and what they mean. I first asked him to give me a quick rundown of what's changed.
1: So the Commission has always offered a free and confidential complaints and disputes resolution service, but now we're able to receive complaints from people who have experienced conversion practices. And that is any practice that uh, purports to be able to change someone's um, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression. And so now if anyone feels that they've experienced those, they'll be able to give us a call and we can step you through your options in terms of what's available to you and how to stop these practices.
2: How is this going to benefit Rainbow people across Aotearoa?
1: It is going to hopefully benefit them greatly. Number one, we want to put an end to these practices. I think the select uh, committee uh, submission process and also the petition that preempted um, the legislation that we now have means that New Zealanders know that there's no place for conversion practices in New Zealand. And so... Um, the existence of this service is fantastic for our community because it means that uh, anyone that seeks to want to change who they are or want them to suppress who they are, that now that's unlawful. And it means that um, it allows those of us who are Rainbow LGBTIQ, Tapitapui, MVP Fat, Trans, Non-Binary and the rest of the Rainbow Whānau that we can be ourselves and we don't have to worry. Um, that um, people um, want to change us under, so-called, for medical reasons or or other reasons, uh, whether it's religious or cultural. So I think it's an excellent signal um, for New Zealand.
2: How is confidentiality incorporated into this program?
1: Our uh, frontline staff that look after our, our human rights information services and support team are their experience in dealing with people from a wide range uh, of backgrounds in New Zealand, and also to deal with sensitive human rights issues. So confidentiality is super important. So people don't have to worry that if they give us a call that their confidentiality is going to be breached. However, um, there may be times because uh, people may wish to complain about conversion practices to the police who have is what is called a criminal pathway, and that is that someone who has experienced conversion practices that meets the uh, definition of a criminal uh, offence, and that is if a conversion practice has happened on someone who's under 18 or has impaired decision-making capability, or if it's been shown to have um, serious harm, then they may call the police and they may call us. um, And in those instances, uh, we will have to coordinate information, but that will always be done with the consent of the person who is calling, Uh, so they must know that their confidentiality will be utmost um, throughout this process. We want to make it safe for them, we don't want to re-traumatise them, we don't want them to have to tell their story lots of different times to different people. We really want to streamline that process uh, to make sure that they're not harmed in the process of reporting this.
2: What has the process of seeing these changes being made been like?
1: Um, It has been, uh, I'm a survivor of conversion practices myself, so I underwent these practices for uh, 15 years, uh, formally in Australia and New Zealand. And so if I reflect on what the process has been like, I can reflect on it from both a professional and a personal perspective. From a personal perspective, it's made me realize that, unfortunately, many people who are experiencing conversion practices don't realize that they're experiencing these until after the fact. It wasn't until 15 years of experiencing this that I realised actually these don't work. And so I think the challenge for us who are running this um, scheme and this process is to try to make sure that we're getting to people much earlier on in their conversion practices journey, so that they don't have to endure uh, these harmful detrimental practices for a long time. From a professional perspective, I think what we've really tried to do is have a service that's really uh, survivor-led, survivor-centre, and trauma-informed. And that means that we've been speaking to a wide range of stakeholders survivors themselves uh, people uh, from rainbow sector groups and also people who are takatāpui pacific and from ethnic uh, multicultural communities and to find out what the needs are and so we've really tried to listen we've tried to engage and we've tried to also apply um, all the excellent advice that we were given it's been a, a wonderful rewarding experience and i hope we can make good um, on, on what has been uh, entrusted
2: to us now as we deliver this service. Are there any further developments or changes that you would like to make to the program?
1: Probably a really big one and this was made
2: um, clear by many
1: uh, activists and many survivors of incubation practices and also the Human Rights Commission and that is unfortunately that um, there's a really long tale of trauma and anxiety and in some cases um, thoughts of suicide um, and depression that accompany someone who's experienced conversion practices and at the moment if they wanted to uh, get counseling for that um, it's essentially they'll have to pay for it outside what the government um, normally provides for free for people so that means that the burden sits on us and you know when you've been told every day of your life for a very long time that there's something wrong and something broken with you even when you finish these practices that that hangs around and so what We want to see what many other people want to see is a scheme that's free similar to the acc scheme for people who experience um sexual violence that they can uh, get free counseling we would like to see something like that happening alongside um this service because while we want to help facilitate access for justice so that people can get um justice and things that are good for them a good um, resolution to their conversion practices experience We are not um, counsellors. We are not psychosocial uh, support workers. While we're going to try to make a really uh, safe um, service, we are not um, clinicians, etc. health workers um, with those specialties. So it would be really good, in addition to the service, if those um, psychosocial counselling services could be available for free as well. So that's something that we're going to continue to advocate for alongside uh, survivors, advocates, um, and community groups, such as uh, Inside Out and uh, Rainbow Youth and uh, Outline, and many others.
2: That was Andre Afo-Masana on the Human Rights Commission's work on their conversion practices support services. That was the Wire. Ko e te hotaka katoa motene And that is a wrap on the Friday Wire. Thank you to those who spoke with us today. City Councillor Shane Henderson, the Human Rights Commission's Andre Afamasaga, ACT MP James McDowell, Kelly Edison from Kia New Zealand, Victoria Chen from Victoria University of Wellington and Stephen Judd from Fact Aotearoa. Thank you for tuning in. If you miss anything, all of these interviews will be podcasted on 95BFM.com, or you can find a lot of them on Apple Podcasts. Kahoki e Wiki. Next up is Land of the Good Groove. You're on the BFM.